came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts, and welcome to our first episode of Astrophys for the year. And we have an amazing interview for you. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is February 1, 2021. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we're zooming over to Perth in Western Australia to hear a fabulous exposition from Dr Fiona Panther, how gravitational wave research is making waves in astronomy. Enjoy. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Brendan. It's a great pleasure today to speak again with Dr. Fiona Panther, who is a gravitational wave astronomer and Osgrad postdoctoral researcher at the University of Western Australia. Thanks for speaking with us, Fiona. Thank you for having me back. It's good to talk to you. Excellent. So before we talk about your gravitational wave research, we'll just remind listeners of a great interview Fiona gave us four years ago, back in episode 28, when you were in the middle of your PhD research. And since then, you've been awarded your doctorate, and then you spent a year lecturing in physics at the University of New South Wales. And your PhD thesis has been published, Positron Annihilation in the Milky Way. And last year, you moved over to the other side of the country to work on gravitational wave research. And two huge things here, Fiona, moving your home base 4,000 kilometres westward at the very beginning of a global pandemic and changing your research focus from positrons to gravitational waves. Now, we'll talk about gravitational wave astronomy in detail a little later, but right now, can you tell us about shifting your house and shifting your research focus, please, Fiona? And are you still working with programmers to create advanced algorithms over in the West? Yeah, it's been a bit of an adventure, really. Although I'd say that moving from one side of Australia to the other is a kind of small fry in comparison. So I've actually emigrated twice. I moved from the UK to New Zealand with my family when I was a teenager. And again, I came from New Zealand to Australia to do my PhD. So moving to Perth sort of felt actually quite easy in comparison. It was a little bit just like moving to the other side of town. Although I've got to say, we, I think we arrived in Perth two weeks before all of the COVID lockdowns did start. So it was a very interesting time to start work. So my group went to work remotely from the beginning of March and I started in April and I didn't see them in person for a bit over three months. Um, I think we first met in person in July. So it was a very interesting time to start a new job. And as for shifting my research focus, I mean, that was kind of a, a bigger change in a way. I was probably quite well known for what I'd done my PhD on in positron astrophysics. And I think a lot of people were quite surprised when I chose to work in, in gravitational waves. But it was really a case of I, I saw a job advert for something which 
needed the kind of skills I had, the connection between the computer science side and the astronomy side. And I get to do everything that I really love doing. So I get to do the, the computer science work that I really enjoy and interact with like a whole range of people um, and all over the world as well, which is fantastic being part of LIGO. Fantastic. See the world and become an astronomer and meet interesting characters. Quite a journey in many ways. Now, back in late 2017, we had an episode where we heard a little about the first detection of gravitational waves from Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez from the AAO. Then in 2018, Dr. Matthew Bales introduced us to Osgrav. But for the sake of our old and new listeners, I'd love to go back to first principles with you, Fiona, and hear from you about the prediction of gravitational waves, the LIGO and Virgo interferometry instruments that have been designed to detect gravitational wave, the events that trigger the production of gravitational waves and the subsequent confirmed detections of gravitational waves. I know it's a big ask, but I'm sure you can condense it for us. Oh, I mean, I could talk for hours about this <laughs> and there's lots of sort of different ways you can talk about it. I guess I'll talk maybe a bit about my story with gravitational waves because I think this is probably the, I mean, it's the way I learned it. So back in 2014, I was at the University of Auckland doing my honours year of my um, Bachelor of Science. And I remember one of the lectures, I did a GR course in my second semester with Professor Richard Easter, who was head of department at the time, had been doing my honours research with him. And this was 2014. And I remember very vividly going through the mathematics, the general relativity equations, describing how these equations that Einstein came up with nearly 100 years ago at that point, that describe the way um, space-time, this fabric which everything in the universe sits in, um, he has these equations which describe the different ways that it, they, it can move. And one of the ways that they've found actually was that this space-time fabric can actually move in waves. And so I remember sitting through this lecture, learning about how to find these wave solutions, these gravitational waves is what we call them, all of the mathematics of it, and not really knowing whether these were something that would really ever be detected. And I think at that time, that was 2014, like a lot of uncertainty about, you know, are these really going to be a real thing or are they just one of these like mathematical curiosities? Yep. And this is what took me sort of, it kind of takes me back to antimatter because at the time of the theoretical discovery of antimatter, people did think that was just a mathematical curiosity. And then just a couple of years later, the first antimatter particle, the positron was actually discovered. Yep. And so about 100 years after the first prediction of gravitational waves by Einstein in 2015, that was the very first detection of gravitational waves by the LIGO interferometers in, in the US. So the first detections happened in, in mid-2015, and there was a lot of verification had to go in to really validating whether or not that they really were or whether it was just noise or some weird thing that gave the almost gravitational wave-like signal. And so by the time they had verified that, the rest of the world was told. It was on the 11th of February, 2016. I was at my very first scientific conference when that happened. And I remember the day after Paul Lasky, who's, who's now a very big part of Osgrav, giving a talk all about gravitational waves. And up to that point, a lot of gravitational wave astronomers had kind of been, the astronomers in particular, had been kind of treated like these sort of fringe scientists. Um, there was a lot of suspicion about, oh, you know, is this just something that everyone's chasing after and it doesn't exist? And since then, it, everything's really burst onto the scene. But in terms of the process of getting to the point of discovering gravitational waves, this is something which goes back decades. And you can really see that history if you look at the papers that we publish in the collaboration, LIGO Virgo scientific collaboration, you'll see thousands and thousands of authors on those papers. And, and a lot of astronomers, they, they sometimes get a bit sniffy about this and, oh, well, what contribution can all those people really have made? Well, 
it's the decades of contribution to building the infrastructure. The experimentalists, absolutely the backbone of the discovery of gravitational waves. And we couldn't do anything we do without the experimentalists. And one of the reasons our paper uh, author lists are so long is, is to really pay respect to the fact that these people put 30, 40 years of work into building these massive instruments. So the way it works is you have an incredibly precise system um, that uses lasers uh, to measure the stretching and contraction of this space-time fabric we all sit in. What you're actually detecting is deviations that are really no bigger uh, than a fraction of the size of an atomic nucleus. Uh, the fact that we can do that with this technology is, is incredible. There are lots and lots of teams within LIGO, right from the people who build the experiments, um, who test the experiments, and then all the way up to the operators. And then finally, there is the, um, the teams that I'm part of who use the data from these interferometers uh, we actually take the information and we try and see whether there is a gravitational wave source. So you asked a little bit about what events trigger the production of gravitational waves yep. and what we've detected so far. Yes. Yep. So at the end of last year, um, LIGO published their second gravitational wave transient catalogue, um, which takes us uh, to all of the events we've detected up to the end of 2019, um, which was the first half of the third LIGO observing run. Um, we've got about 50 or so events now somewhere in the region that are confirmed, that are publicly released. And those are predominantly from binary black hole mergers. So most of the events that we detect come from mergers of black holes that are between probably about 20 and up to maybe 100 solar masses. So those are the most common. We have a very small handful of neutron star, neutron star mergers the very famous one, of course, was in 2017, where we also saw something called a kilonova. It's the electromagnetic radiation. And we have, I think, a couple of possible neutron star black hole mergers at this point. That's fantastic, Fiona. So there's quite a few ways of generating gravitational waves, and it looks like there's a few ways of detecting them as well. Like we've got the pulsar rays using the Parkes dish and those instruments you've just described, LIGO and Virgo. Can you tell us about the collaborations, the methods and the instruments that you're using in your particular work on gravitational waves? Yeah, sure. So we're part of the LIGO-Virgo collaboration, the LSC. So we are using the laser interferometers, um, the two LIGO interferometers in the US, so Livingston and Hanford and also the Virgo interferometer, which is in Italy. We're hoping in the next couple of years, maybe by the time of the fourth observing run, which will be sort of 2022, we may even see the instrument in Japan, Kagura, coming online, and that's also a laser interferometer. So we don't directly use the equipment, so I'm not doing anything in the lab. But what we get is we get the data that's coming off the interferometers when they're online. They're offline at the moment. But when they're online, the data comes off in real time. And what we're seeing is we're seeing something called the gravitational wave strain. So that's the measuring the deformations in space-time. And we use a computer program, which is called SPEAR, which stands for Summed Parallel Infinite Impulse Response. And I'll explain a bit how that works in a second. Um, this is our algorithm to search for gravitational waves in real time. Um, so we process the data as it comes in, second by second, and we are able to send out alerts as to whether we've seen a gravitational wave or not within seconds of that event taking place, which enables other telescopes to go looking for the gravitational wave source. So how SPEAR works, it actually works a little bit like how human hearing and human understanding of speech works. So it uses something called infinite impulse response filters. And what these are is we build them to listen for certain parts of a gravitational wave signal. You can think of a gravitational wave signal as being like a sentence. Um, so if you're at a party, for example, and someone's standing next to you and says, are you having a good time? Let's take that as our sentence, our gravitational wave signal. Yep. 
Now, if it's a really, really quiet room, it's very, very easy to hear someone next to you saying that sentence. But if the room is very, very noisy, then you're going to have to try and distinguish between all of the background noise of voices talking and the person you want to listen to. So what your brain is actually doing in that situation is they're listening for individual words that make up that sentence. And they're trying to put that together to understand the context. So let's say you're standing next to someone, it's a very noisy room. At the party, they lean across and they say, are you having a good time? Now, you may miss the very beginning of that sentence, maybe because the person's speaking quite quietly. So let's say you miss the first two words, but you've become aware that, oh, well, there's someone is talking to me. Your brain will then tune in and now it's listening out for the third word. And maybe you hear the third word a little bit more clearly, you'll hear the fourth word even more clearly. And by that point, your brain can put together the fact that that's what the sentence said, and that's the meaning, and then you're already ready to respond. And that's almost exactly how we listen out for the gravitational wave signals. Uh, we use a GPU, which is a type of computer processing chip, which is usually used to power things like video games, graphical processing unit. And we have our gravitational wave signals split into lots of individual little words. And what we're looking for is we're looking for a sequence of GPUs that understand those words in the correct order to mean it's a sentence that means something to us. Um, so we're looking out for these gravitational wave signals that we recognize. And that's a bit how Sphere works. That's insane. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, amazing. Now, <clears throat> we know that great science is often a really hard slog and it's not all about eureka moments and serendipitous discoveries. Can we go into the deep end again? And would you like to tell our listeners about any particular issues you're currently dealing with and what sort of problems do you encounter in your work? I mean, we, we encounter all kinds of problems. Most of them, um, for us, tend to be uh, related to computing. Um, so at the moment, of course, the LIGO machines are actually, they're turned off right now. Um, they're being upgraded, which means there's no data actively coming in. So we're not actively searching for gravitational waves. And for a real-time search, you might think that we're just sort of sitting around not doing much. We're actually, this is our very, very busy time. We've got about a year in which to make all of the upgrades uh, to our pipeline so that it can run during the next observing run. When a lot of astronomers are developing software, even in big collaborations, um, there's often not that many checks and balances done. Um, the way LIGO operates when it comes to software and the searches that we run, um, there is a huge amount of validation and testing and review that we have to go through. So it's not as simple as writing a few lines of code and adding it to the code base. Um, we actually go up to review um, within the collaboration and with the team of reviewers relatively frequently. And only if those reviewers agree that our changes um, they're producing the correct science, they're producing consistent science, and it's being an efficient use of compute resources. Only then are we actually permitted to, to run in real time. So there are only five real-time search pipelines, and Spear is one of them. So at the moment, we're making a lot of upgrades to the pipeline, including things like being able to have a fourth detector come online during the observing run, so including CAGRA. And we also want to be able to detect events which are detected only in a single one of the interferometers. So at the moment, our pipeline, it only runs when there are two or more detectors online, basically because you can do a coincidence search and check that the signal is in both detectors and validate that it's really there. 30% of the time, there's only one detector online for various reasons. The detector may go down for maintenance. Uh, they may lose laser lock. There may be issues with the vacuum. Yep. And so my job actually at the moment is enabling us to be able to continue running during those times. Um, so we're hoping that by the time O4 comes around, the single detector pipeline will be functioning. Um, so that's a lot of work for me right at the moment. 
so it's it's very very interesting way to work especially compared with what I used to do in more of a, an astronomy kind of context where there's maybe um, not so many checks and balances it's also really interesting that often there are sometimes problems with our pipeline that are not affecting science they're not major structural problems they're just little quirks that you kind of have to work around um, these bugs that come up previously sort of my understanding of that was like a bug was a terrible thing and you know you can't possibly um, actually work with code that has a bug in it um, we actually find workarounds for these sort of things but a lot of the work we do at the moment is trying to iron out those little problems it's a really good exercise in letting go of perfectionism. You know, you learn that actually things don't have to be perfect to work well. And, and the fact that we have all of these checks and balances before we go to run on the real-time data means that even if there are little quirks that we don't quite fully understand, we're still getting the good science out at the end. And that's one of the really nice things about, about working with LIGO. Fantastic just reminded me that great science is often um, part philosophy, part poetry, uh, and a lot of art in there as well. Uh, that's fantastic, Fiona. Uh, no, thank you. Now, that's the nitty-gritty of the research. Now, oh, what about the big picture? What are some of the big questions that might emerge or have already emerged from gravitational wave astronomy? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because this is one of those fields where it's kind of both a very young field in terms of the observations and quite an old field in terms of the, the theory that's around about what sort of things might make gravitational waves, or, you know, what are the properties of the things which are merging together. So some of the big questions that I, I'm seeing addressed a lot at the moment are around, you know, what sort of population properties do these merging black holes have? So, for example, you know, what are the component masses? How massive can these black holes actually get? And we have had a couple of observations which have really challenged theories about how black holes form, especially in binaries. So one of the observations in particular, it's, it, I've forgotten the, the actual name of the thing um, off the top of my head, but it had very, very large component masses, about 150 times the mass of our sun. And previously, it was actually thought that that was fairly close to the upper limit of the mass a black hole could get to um, if it formed through a supernova explosion. And so it's really challenging scientists to think of ways that we can produce this distribution of black hole masses that we're seeing. Some of the other questions which I think will become... Um, they'll be maybe made a little bit more clear the answers to them um, after the fourth observing run in about a year's time will be around neutron star mergers. So we've not seen very many neutron star mergers so far. There were only a couple during O3A and we only have one where we've seen electromagnetic radiation associated with it. So we've seen light and radio waves and gamma rays um, coming from the same event. All of the black hole mergers we've seen, we've seen no electromagnetic radiation coming from those events, which was kind of expected. There's not really much in those mergers that can produce electromagnetic radiation. On the other hand, uh, neutron stars, they produce a lot of electromagnetic radiation. But we want to understand not just what's going on after the merger, which is kind of what we've already seen to an extent. Yep. We want to know what's going on just before and actually during the process of the merger itself. So 1708-17 was a really exciting event, um, this neutron star merger. It was very, very close by. And they saw a flash of gamma rays from it when the stars first merged. Um, that was just found completely by coincidence. And then about 12 hours later, they started seeing the optical light. And then a few, I think it was a few weeks later, they started seeing radio emission. Um, which was kind of exactly what was predicted. But with OFOL, we want to go a little bit deeper into seeing what happens in the moments when the neutron stars merge and the seconds immediately afterwards, because that's something we actually missed during 1708-17. So this kind of observation, it relies on the gravitational wave detection pipelines being able to forewarn 
the optical and gamma ray and X-ray and radio observatories that a neutron star merger will occur. So this kind of sounds a little bit crazy, but um, our plan is actually to be able to give up to 60 seconds early warning that a neutron star merger is going to take place somewhere in the universe. Um, this is something that um, we're actually writing a, a paper about at the moment is our capacity to do this at, uh, with LIGO. So what we're hoping is that in the next observing run, we will have some neutron star merger um, where we actually catch the whole thing with all kinds of different telescopes, gravitational waves, neutrinos, cosmic rays, and all of the electromagnetic spectrum, because we will be able to tell everybody to look in the right direction at the right time. That's insane. <laughs> That's amazing. I've heard a lot about astronomers looking back in time, but it looks like with gravitational wave astronomy, you can also look forward in time. That's fantastic, Fiona. Oh. Just a supplementary question on that. Can you go back and look at the archival data from the first three runs and extract more information out of that? Um, so in terms of looking at electromagnetic observations, that's definitely something people have done. With the first couple of observing runs, especially the first observing run, it's quite hard to really know where to look if you're looking for electromagnetic radiation. So during the first observing run, we only had two interferometers online. And what that means is that it's very, very hard to pick where in the sky that gravitational wave actually came from. You get these very, very large swathes of the sky where it's plausible the gravitational wave could have come from. By the third observing run, you're starting to be able to triangulate a little bit more because you've got a third detector in Virgo. Um, so you can narrow down where that radiation may have come from. In terms of gravitational waves, though, people have gone back and gone over the data from the first few observing runs, uh, even people outside the, the LIGO-Virgo collaboration. So for about a year after the end of each observing run, um, we keep everything proprietary within the collaboration. And then after that, we release the data to the public. And so from the first couple of observing runs, there was a very famous study done by a group of Princeton with Barak Zake as one of the lead authors, where they actually found, and I think it was an additional two or three binary black hole mergers using their search algorithm on the archival gravitational wave data which is a really interesting thing to do. And if you go to the LIGO.org website, it is actually possible for the general public to get involved. Um, you can either go through the uh, Gravity Spy Zooniverse project, so you can help us understand glitches in the gravitational wave detectors. Or if you want to play with the data itself, there are some really lovely tutorials um, which show you how to use the data that, that we use the actual same information that we get in with our pipeline uh, to find gravitational waves. And so you can have a bit of a look for your own. And I'll be making a video at the moment actually showing people how to do that. So, so do stay tuned for a bit more on, on searching through the archives. Fantastic. Citizen scientists, jump on board. Now, these latest huge arrays that are being developed now in radio astronomy, they're generating a huge amount of data that has to be interrogated. And would you like to tell us about the innovative work being done with the OSTAR machine over at Swinburne University in Melbourne and the, the Doug High Performance uh, Systems that you have there in Perth? Yes, yeah, so the computer that I use for a lot of my work developing the pipeline is in Australia at Swinburne. And we, for running online at the moment, we do actually have to use a computer over in the States. Just because of the data distribution time, it has to come directly from Caltech. But the facility in Australia is an absolutely incredible facility. So this is the OzStar supercomputer. It's a very, very large computer. And it is uh, I think it's partially renewably powered now, if not completely, they, uh, they do actually use renewable power. One of the problems with supercomputing is it does chew up a huge amount of electricity that you might've seen last year. There was a big study in nature astronomy done about the consequences of computing in astronomy 
for the environment, just the amount of power that we use up. So OzStar is brilliant in the sense that they really have this um, mindset of, of improving things. It's also quite a unique computer in that it is optimized to have programs run on it that use GPUs. So these graphical processing units, um, most people will have them in their computers, especially if you play video games, you've probably got a really high quality GPU. Um, those are the same GPU cards, if you've got a, something like an NVIDIA card, that are actually installed on the OzStar computer. So all of the compute nodes on that computer that are available do have GPU access, um, which is quite unique. Not all computers do have that. And it's perfect for our pipeline because our pipeline does use GPUs. So that's where most of our computing is done. Um, we have a lot of support from ADAC's Astronomy Data and Computing Center. And we do have two really excellent software developers working with us from Swinburne, Alex and Patrick who help us out a lot. The facility in Perth that, that, I, that you mentioned, Doug, is uh, down under GeoSolutions, I think. I've seen some, some really interesting stuff that they've been doing where you can actually get access to their computers. Um, my favorite thing, though, is seeing the post on social media when people go visit them. All of their machines are oil-cooled, but they're actually cooled by baby oil. So it's, it's a type of mineral oil, perfect for cooling these kind of computing chips. And I've seen some really fantastic pictures of people actually dipping their fingers into this coolant oil around the computers. So that's always really, really good fun to see. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Look, another question. I'm sorry, Fiona. With gravitational waves, is there a gravitational wave equivalent of the cosmic microwave background radiation? Are people looking for that? Yes, yeah, so, so there's a few different, um, this is something we call stochastic background, this, this sort of background fuzz of gravitational waves. We, we know it must be there because anything that moves in space is, is rippling space-time, it's producing gravitational waves. So we know of a lot of binary star systems uh, in our galaxy. So for example, you might have um, binary white dwarves that might go on to produce a type 1a supernova at some point in the future. As those stars orbit around one another, they will actually be orbiting closer and closer and closer together because they're giving off gravitational wave radiation. They're losing that energy. And this is the kind of thing that this stochastic background is made up of. So it'll be everything from very small stars orbiting one another to very massive, supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies where you may have two very massive black holes orbiting one another. Um, the other kind of stochastic background people may look for is would be gravitational waves that originated from the very, very early times in the universe. So from just following the Big Bang, um, when the universe inflated to many, many exponentially times what it initially was, um, there may actually be some imprint in gravitational waves left over from inflation. And so there are lots of people who are searching for this stochastic background. The problem is it has to be done in quite a different way to the searchers that find the very, very bright or loud gravitational wave sources that Spear finds. So what we do is we predict what these merging black holes will look like and we use those templates to see if any of the data fits that template. When you've got the stochastic background, it would be absolutely impossible to create a template that, that represents it. So you can't do the same process, this match filtering process. There are other ways in which you can process the data. So there are lots of groups within LIGO who are interested in finding this stochastic background particularly because going forward um, beyond the fourth observing run, uh, as LIGO reaches its final design sensitivity and then is, has its sensitivity increased again, and as we go to space-based detectors, so for example, you've got the LISA detector, which is being developed by the US, and then Qianqin is the Chinese detector yep. that will hopefully be launched in the next sort of 10 years or so. This sort of background is actually going to become quite a serious issue for detecting individual gravitational wave sources. So it'll be important to understand, um, you know, what of our background is noise from the detector? What of the background is actually noise from everything else in the universe just moving around? And, and where are our gravitational wave sources? 
That's astonishing. Fantastic. Well, here we are in 2021 now, and COVID-19 has had, and still in many ways, having a huge impact worldwide. How has it impacted on your research, Fiona? We've been very, very lucky in a sense that we're, we're here in Perth. We're very much insulated from what's been going on around the world. I really feel for my colleagues in Melbourne who were locked up for so long. It was obviously very, very challenging time. Most of our work has always been done remotely. You know, we are communicating with the collaboration through telecons, through online meetings and everything. It's just too expensive to constantly be flying different places. The main thing that we have missed out on are things like the, the main collaboration meeting for LIGO. It seems very, very petty to say. But it is good to meet up with people in person. You know, it, it does foster, I think, stronger collaboration when you can see people face to face. From a science perspective, I guess the main impacts have really been more on, on LIGO as a whole as a facility. They did have to cut short the end of the third observing run due to COVID. We are expecting probably some delay in starting the fourth observing run, 04, just due to COVID delays and getting just simple things like pouring concrete for a new pad, for a new room or something, that, that's something which has really affected the collaboration as a whole. Um, it's impressive how people have managed to, to keep moving forward. So we've been extremely lucky. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, it was a very interesting way to start a job to not see the people that I work with in person. Um, I'm very much like a kind of people person. I like to be interacting with lots of people. And so it was very, very strange to spend the first three months just really working alone. I'm really glad to say that, you know, as soon as we were able to all come back into work and all work together that, you know, I absolutely love working with my group. They're just a fantastic group of people. So my boss, Lin Ching Wen, incredible, incredible woman to work with and fellow postdoc, Chi Chi. She's just absolutely fantastic. They've been so welcoming, especially to someone who asks a lot of very stupid questions who's new to gravitational waves. So, yeah, we've been very, very insulated from a lot of what's been going on in the world. I feel very, very lucky, you know, and, and missing my family overseas. You know, I've been lucky that I've had my, my science family, not to take their place, but, you know, just as, as someone, as, as people to rely on during a really tricky time. So that's been very, very good. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Fiona. Yep. You've got a history of doing lovely outreach work and the clarity of your explanations today is just exceptional. Is outreach still a part of your repertoire? Well, thank you very much for that. It's certainly changed a bit. I th and I think COVID has also really affected this. It's, it's one of the things I have missed is just that we haven't been able to get out into groups of people in the public, you know, to talk about science as much. So I did a huge amount of outreach um, when I was back doing my PhD at Mount Stromlo in Canberra. You know, they have a fabulous outreach program there um, with the school visits and everything. And I, it really helped me sort of, of hone my craft. Last year, it was a bit of a tricky year for me just in terms of, you know, getting into a new field, you know, finding my feet, I guess. So I think I haven't done as much outreach work as I, I would have liked I've got some really interesting plans for this year, though. We're going to be filming some content, which I'm hoping will make some of the science that we do a lot more accessible. So um, the actual computing side, not, not just thinking about, you know, looking through a telescope, but, you know, how do we make computing more accessible to, to people, especially now that, you know, computers and phones and, and technology is so commonplace. So just... Got to be filming some content there. Um, keep an eye out on my blog. And also um, our students have been doing some absolutely fantastic outreach. So Chion, who's a, a member of our group, he's a PhD student. He's working on machine learning, trying to find the localizations for these gravitational wave sources. He won the three-minute thesis at UWA earlier last year. 
um, which was a fabulous achievement. Um, his video is, is up online. Just a really lovely talk about gravitational wave astronomy. Um, so really excited actually to see what some of our students are going to be putting out because that's really, really cool. Um, and our group website is currently, um, we're constructing our group website. And I think there'll be some pretty cool blog posts will come out via our group as well. We want to get the story out about what we're doing. You know, we're, we're in this funny sort of no man's land between the people who do the cool work with the experiment and the laser and everything, and the people who do the cool work with the astronomy and the finding, you know, oh, we know what, what's the mass of the black hole? We kind of often get a bit lost, you know, but, but we're the ones who are finding the sources. We're finding them in real time. And I think there's a really, there's a couple of cool stories to tell there. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out. Uh, we will indeed. And we'll put some of those links into our astrophys.com website and we'll remind people about the Antimatter blog as well. Now, what future directions can you see yourself heading with your passion for gravitational wave research? This is, a, this is a tricky one because it's very hard to tell, you know, as a, as a postdoc, um, having a career in science at this point, you know, you don't really know necessarily what's going to be happening in, in three years' time. You know, I'm hoping that I'll, I'll stick around in astronomy. I'm certainly really, really loving being that bridge between the software development side and the astronomy side. I'm really, really enjoying, you know, working on sort of both sides of that fence. In terms of gravitational wave research, I, I would absolutely love to continue working as a developer on our pipeline. You know, I'm really looking forward to 04. I can't wait to be running the pipeline online and actually being the one who is getting up in the middle of the night to respond to those gravitational wave alerts, because that's what we have to do. It sounds kind of crazy, but that's actually one of the reasons I originally got into supernova survey work was I was really amped to be sort of like, oh, you know, very, very fast response to these things. And, you know, we're discovering this in real time. And supernovae, turns out they actually, in the grand scheme of things, evolve very, very slowly over the course of days to weeks. You don't have to hop out of bed and go look at something. Whereas gravitational waves, um, during the next observing run, yes, I will be getting called at three in the morning if there's a gravitational wave. Yes, I will have to get out of bed. And yes, I will have to be one of the people who is disseminating that information to the community. Um, so that's one of those things that I'm really, really excited about. I don't really know where things will be going, you know, much beyond three years time. But I think this is, you know, this is a very, very young field. I'm excited to see especially things like um, investment, you know, in Australia, people are investing in this space agency, you know, hopefully there'll be um, a lot more going on in terms of gravitational wave detection in space. That's something that my group is very, very interested in. We're involved in this brand new space research centre um, at, at UWA um, that's being developed. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what direction that goes in. So I'm hoping to stay working in gravitational waves. Um, if not, I'm sure there will be plenty of opportunities to take that experience in that real-time signals processing out into the, the real world and, and see what's out there beyond. So, yeah, that's, that's my hopes anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. And from the timbre of your voice, it sounds like it's an adrenaline-rich environment. Now, the mic's all yours now, Fiona, and... We like to give you the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in the lack of diversity or opportunity in science communities in outreach or science denialism or career paths or your own passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours. I mean, I thought a lot about this question and I love that you ask for everyone to sort of you know, have, a, have an opinion about this. I've been thinking a lot over the last year or so about, you know, how do we actually get people into science and who is being attracted to studying science at our universities? Um, one thing that I've really come to realise looking around me is just how important it is we really properly support students who are first in family to be going to university. 
you know, a lot of universities sort of, they really pride themselves on, oh, you know, we're attracting people from remote communities who are first in family to go to university. And the thing is, a lot of universities do a very good job at attracting these students, but they don't give the adequate support to keep those students engaged and get them to the point of getting their degree, getting honours, getting masters, getting a PhD. It's actually an incredibly big challenge to navigate university. If you don't have somebody who is experienced in your immediate circle telling you what to do. I'm not my first in family to go to university, but I mean, my parents, they studied dentistry, which is a very prescribed course. I struggled with trying to figure out what courses I should take. And I can't imagine how I would have navigated that had I not had any understanding of university at all uh, through my family. Um, so one of the things that I am really, you know, I'm looking to try and do more work towards is helping out students who are first in family to find those opportunities that come so easily to those of us who have that experience of the academic system. You know, as simple as knowing that there are scholarships to apply for, knowing that you can choose to do this course and it will be part of your major. Um, just very, very simple things, I think, that come very naturally to a lot of people who are in academia that we don't really think about as being quite a significant challenge. You know, I would love to see more support for students who maybe can't afford to do research internships, you know, for example, things like summer research programs, very accessible as long as you're not having to work to support your family. You know, there is a real disadvantage experienced by people who are maybe non-traditional students or who need to support their family. You know, the reason why they aren't taking up these opportunities is that they're just not actually that accessible. You know, if you need to go out to work to earn money, the amount that you get paid to do these research internships is not an adequate substitute and often requires a lot more work. I'd love to see these kind of programs become more genuinely equitable as time goes forward. And it does require investment by the universities. It does require money. But I think it's a really, really important thing. You know, you, you can't pride yourself on having, you know, oh, you know, we've got this many people who are first in family to go to university in our university and then not provide them the support that they need to have the same opportunities that those of us who just happened to have the money did. And, and I, could, I could go, honestly, I could go on about this for a very, very long time. Yeah. It's something that I'm really passionate about. If, any, you know, if anyone out there has, has questions, you know, you want to go to university, but you're just a bit bemused by the whole thing, I can... Yeah, I can't necessarily give advice to everyone, but I can certainly help you find the services um, at the university you want to go to that will help you out with this. Um, because often you're just not told. Um, so if anyone does, you know, out there does, you know, want someone to, you know, help them out with that, I'm just saying there are, there are people out there, myself included, uh, who can help, who can put you in touch with the right people. You know, if you want to go to uni, don't just assume it's not for you because you can't immediately find the help that you need. There are people out there who are definitely willing to help. They're tricky to find. But there are also people like me who are inside the system who we really, really want to help and want to make a difference. So that's, it's something that I want to try and figure out how I can do more to help with this. Definitely. Fantastic, Fiona. Watch this space. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? I'm definitely at this point looking forward to the beginning of the fourth LIGO observing run. Um, that'll be sometime next year. Um, there's going to be a lot of very, very exciting things I think will happen during that observing run. The LIGO and Virgo instruments will be more sensitive than ever. We're going to see more gravitational wave signals than ever. We're going to be seeing you know, more than one, two, three a week. Um, it's going to be a very, very exciting time. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. In the near future, there are some very, very exciting papers which will come out um, based on the third observing run, which ended um, at the beginning of last year. So we have the second half of the O3 catalogue still to publish. And we also have the sub-threshold catalogue. So those events that were maybe a little bit marginal, we're not so sure about them. Those will be coming out, I think, in the coming months. Very, very exciting time. So definitely keep your eye on gravitational wave astronomy. Yeah, very, very exciting time. 
Thank you very much. I'm positive that there'll be a lot of people keeping their eye out at citizen scientists and a lot of our listeners. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fiona Panther. On behalf of all our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you and hearing your wonderful explanation of gravitational waves. Thank you, especially for your time and your, I know your busy schedule. I've had a look at it. It's amazing. And we'll encourage all listeners to check out at Fee Panther on Twitter. It's at F-I-P-A-N-T-H-E-R on Twitter. And congratulations on all your great work. And I'm looking forward to hearing about this next run and your next discoveries. Thanks very much, Fiona. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been great talking to you. Bye for now. Yeah, excellent. See you. Bye. And a final word. For gravitational wave fans, keep your eye on Dr. Fiona's antimatter blog at antimatter.space. That's A-U-N-T-I-E matter.space. And I just had a look at the three-minute thesis video that Fiona referred to. It's fantastic. It's by Shayan Chatterjee, and you can find it at bitly.ccgw. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash ccgw. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. And we'll see you next when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio Wave!